Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 18. We're also going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Our family has a cat. We have two cats, actually. But the one cat I like, she's the best cat we've ever owned. Her name is Ladybug. That, Emily gave her that name. I call her LB for short. LB is a calico cat. And like I said, she's probably the best cat we ever owned. And the reason why she's the best cat is she's got the greatest personality. She'll come up behind you while you're sitting on the couch watching TV. She'll walk along the back of the couch and she'll bump your head with her head. And she'll keep doing that. And she's trying to get your attention. And finally... She'll stop after you start petting her. Or she'll come up beside you and roll over on her back and look at you upside down and be waiting for you to start scratching under her chin. Ladybug is a great cat. She's almost as good as Duke. That was our dog. But Ladybug has a problem. She's also a discontent cat. You see, every time the door is open, Ladybug wants to go outside. Every time she's in the back window, she's looking out at the bird feeder. She's wanting to be outside with the birds, to have lunch with the birds. And guess who the lunch is? It's not Ladybug. Ladybug is a discontent cat. But you know what? Many times we're like Ladybug, aren't we? You see, the reason why Ladybug's discontent is because um, we used to allow her to be an outdoor cat. For four years when we lived out in the country, she was an outdoor cat. And now that we live in town, we keep her inside in order for her not to get run over by a car. So she doesn't know that. She wants to go outside because she wants her freedom. And many times, we are just like Ladybug, aren't we? We cannot be content with our master's will and we're trying to find contentment in all the wrong places. When we are discontent, we can become easily dissatisfied with many things in our lives. We can be dissatisfied with our job, with our marriage, with our house, with our kids, with our life, right? 
Our society is being ravaged by a disease called affluenza. And one of the warning signs of this disease is discontentment. How is a Christian to live a life of contentment in a world that is promoting discontentment, and you know that, all the time? Everywhere you look, TV, commercials, books, magazines, billboards, they promote discontentment. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer, and it's found here. It's found here in Philippians 4, 10 through 18, and it's also found in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Let's, let's look at this, and the first thing that we're going to look at is the example of contentment. The example of contentment. This is the Word of God. Verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourself also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matters of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for me and my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul here takes an opportunity to thank the Philippian church for the gift that they sent him. Now, Paul's thanks is ten verses long. That, that's a lot of thanks, right? But he wants the Philippians not to misunderstand his intentions. He wants them to know that he wasn't sitting around waiting for a gift, nor was he wanting another gift. He was thankful for what they had given him. And while giving thanks, he shares with them the secret of contentment. Now this word contentment can also be translated self-sufficient. And, and I think of it, instead of self-sufficient, I think of God-sufficient. That you're God-sufficient. This means that a person is independent of their surroundings, conditions, and circumstances of life. Now, think about that. 
Can you imagine being independent of your circumstances? Especially if they're bad circumstances. Um, That's what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying that whatever circumstance, whatever condition he finds himself, and we'll be looking at also at 2 Corinthians, he himself has learned to be content in them. He doesn't allow the conditions of his life or material things to control his life. He doesn't base his happiness on what's taking place in his life. Now, notice in verse 12 that he says he has learned these things. And I I am very thankful that he says he's learned them. You know, we think, well, he's an apostle. He ought to be content, right? He's an apostle. But he says here he had to learn them. And I'm thankful that he had to learn them, because if he had to learn them, so do we. We have to be, learn how to be content. And God has used the circumstances in Paul's life, as he uses the circumstances in our life, to learn this secret of contentment. And in God's school of contentment, the Apostle Paul would have received an A+, for learning his lesson well. If you remember in in Acts 16, Paul, when he first went to Philippi, when he first visited this church, right, he was arrested right when he gets to town. He's thrown in jail. He's whipped. His feet are put in stocks. How does he react to this situation? Um, Does he complain? Does he say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. What you just did to me was illegal. He does that later on. He doesn't do that then. But he and Silas, instead of complaining, instead of grumbling, you know what they do? They sing praises to God. And it affects the entire prison. In fact, there's an earthquake. The prison doors open up. Paul and Silas can leave if they want. But the jailer's getting ready to kill himself. So they stop and say, wait a minute, we're here. We haven't left. And they give him the gospel and he becomes a Christian. All of this is because of the way Paul and Silas reacted to this situation. They were content in the situation that God had them in. Now remember this. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. And he's writing this letter from Rome. And the amazing thing about this, this is a letter... It's considered an epistle of joy. It's considered the epistle of joy. But Paul is writing this from house arrest. He's under arrest in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. And he's writing a letter of joy to the Philippians. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He was content in the situation that God put him in. Now think about this. Here he is under house arrest. He is a type A driven personality. He's called by God to evangelize the world, right? And the door has closed on him. He can't evangelize the world anymore. He's under house arrest. So what does he do? What does he do? He looks for another open door. He looks for another direction that God will lead him in. 
And he sees that in these guards that he's chained to. Think about that. He's chained to these guards 24 hours a day. He's chained to guards. In fact, um, he's chained to them and has probably had uh, four guards per day, six, six hours a day. He had a different guard. Now, can you imagine living with the evil characteristics and habits of these guards? And having people from the church come to visit you. And you're talking to them. Having to be chained to a Roman guard. And this Roman guard may be crude. Right? He may be rude. But how did Paul look at the situation? Well, he looked at it as an opportunity. He looked at it as an opportunity for the gospel. And he proclaimed the gospel to these guards. Listen to what it says in Philippians 1. 12 through 13, it says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know, the Apostle Paul could have been discouraged, he could have been discontent, because he was in a, a situation under house arrest, he could have been thinking, I can no longer be a missionary. But he didn't do that. Instead, he looks for another open door. And what does he do? He proclaims the gospel to those guys that are chained to him. And it changes their lives. And what do they do? They go home. And they talk to their families. And their families go out and talk to their friends. And that's what it says here in Philippians 1. It says... The, throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, the gospel was still going forth, even though he was under house arrest. Amazing. Amazing. He was content where God had him. You know what else he was content with? He was also content under house arrest because he did something else. He wrote the prison epistles. Think of what the Bible would be like without the books of Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. These were all a result of God teaching Paul the secret of contentment, even in a confined situation. Well, now that we've looked at Paul's example of contentment, now let's look at the solution of contentment. Go back to verse 12 of this passage. Notice what it says, verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. So he says that he has learned how to do this. Paul learned how to live in poverty. Paul learned how to live in in prosperity. Um, I don't know about you, but I think I could live with prosperity a lot better than poverty, right? Kind of reminds me of uh, Fiddler on the Roof when uh, Tevye is praying to God, and he said, if you're going to smite me with something, smite me with riches, right? <laughs> smite me with riches. But with both of these guys, both of these are a temptation. Um, you can be tempted with poverty to doubt God's goodness. You can be tempted with prosperity 
to forget about God and to trust in yourself. Paul learned through both of these how to be content. But he also learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I mean chapter 12, verse 7, he also learned how to deal with a thorn in the flesh, which he received to keep him humble. Now, let's turn there. Turn where with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's back to the left. Verse 7. says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So, he's given this thorn in the flesh after he has a revelation of heaven. He sees heaven. And so God wants to keep him humble, so he gives him this thorn in the flesh. Now, some theologians think this was a physical problem. Some think it was a problem with his eyes. Some, some think it was the false teachers in Corinth. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it was something that Paul asked God in verse 8. He asked God to remove it from him three times. And God allows him to continue on with this thorn in the flesh. Now you can imagine that would be kind of frustrating for an apostle who has been walking around healing people before, you know, touching them and healing them. And then he can't heal himself if it's a physical problem. God allows him to continue on with this problem. Look at what it says in verse 9 and 10. What does Paul learn from this? Paul, Paul, God says this, the Lord says this, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now notice verse 10. It says, Therefore, I am, here's our word again, well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying here? He's saying he learned how to be dependent upon Christ. He stopped being dependent upon himself. Because when you're dependent on yourself, you're seeing all your weaknesses instead of being dependent upon God's power. And when you're dependent upon God's power, you get to see God's glory, His power working in your behalf and giving you the ability to be content. I remember years ago, Denise and I went to a seminary in L.A., California, all the way from Lake Worth, Florida. 2,000 around 2,500 miles, right? We left everything we knew. Family, 
friends. Um, we sold everything. All we had was what we could put in a 4 by 8 U-Haul trailer pulled by a Volkswagen Rabbit, which was an old Volkswagen Rabbit. Surprised it made it there. We had a Hyundai and a Volkswagen Rabbit. We went to L.A., right? That was a tremendous trial. You can ask Denise more than me. Um, it was a trial. But God used that in our lives to teach us contentment. And he's still teaching us that. But we need to realize that we learn contentment through life's trials. God allows weaknesses, as he says here in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He says he allows weaknesses, he allows insults, he allows distresses, he allows persecutions, difficulties in our lives to teach us contentment. So the question is, how do we react to it? How do we react to it? When those difficulties come, do we say, thank you, God? Or do we say, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this in my life? Do you still love me? Right? Many times we react that way. I know because many times I react that way. What are you doing, God? We need to realize that God uses these to teach us. You know, James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when encountering trials. 1 Thessalonians five eighteen says, Be thankful in all things, for this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. Look at verse 13 again. Turn back to Philippians. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It says, uh, I can do all things through him who, strength, who strengthens me. And I remember this was one of the first verses I memorized, and I memorized it before I was a Christian. Um, my mom would give me books when I was in the Air Force. I was stationed 100 miles away from my home in Homestead, Florida. So I'd drive home every weekend. And every weekend, I'd get with my friends and I'd party and have a good time, and then I'd go back to the Air Force Base. And air, most every weekend, my mom would try to give me a book or something from church, and I'd take that book and take it back and put it on the shelf. And so books started piling up on the shelf and didn't look at them. Month after month after month after month. And finally, I pulled one book off the shelf and read it. Guess what book it was? <laughs> Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. I'm thinking, what was my mom thinking? <laughs> but in that book was a verse. And that's the verse that stuck with me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I just kept pondering over that verse over and over, which shows us 
our need for Christ, our need to be dependent upon Him, our need for His power instead of ours. Now some would think, you know what? Once you get to a certain place in the Christian life, um, you won't struggle with contentment. You won't struggle with it anymore. Well, that wasn't true for Solomon. And if you think about Solomon, he was the richest, wisest, most powerful king that Israel ever had. And in his old age, he started experimenting with things, trying to find satisfaction, right? He, he looked at pleasure, laughter, wine, women, song. He looked at building houses, planting vineyards, uh, collecting gold and silver, and the treasures of kings. And what did he find out? He pursued wisdom. What did he find out? Vanity, vanity, striving after the wind. He could find no contentment, no satisfaction in any of those things. What was his conclusion? His conclusion at the end of the book was Ecclesiastes 12, 13, to fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. You know, and you think about it. If the richest king that Israel ever had, who had more wisdom and greatness and wealth than we will ever imagine possible, if he couldn't find contentment in those things, how do we think that we can ever find contentment in anything here on this earth? Paul Tripp He wrote a book we're studying in our discipleship class, and we're going to do it again in the library starting in May. It's a great book. How how you face suffering. How do you face trials in your life? And, And he says this, Do you not know that because of what Christ has done for you, your future is guaranteed? He says that we have an inheritance that can never perish never spoil, never fade. Think about that, what that means practically. You have a spiritual trust fund that nobody can touch. All the things that are really worth living for, no one can take away from you. They are locked safely away in God's celestial vault. No one can take God's love for you. No one can steal his forgiveness. No one can take his Holy Spirit from within you. No one can rob you of your strength and wisdom. No one can take away your justification or adoption. No one can plunder your place at his side for all eternity. No one can pilfer your deliverance from the presence and power of sin. The riches of this life that you and I could never earn, which are obtained as a gift, are never at risk. That is where contentment is found. And it's found only in Christ. Christ. 
not only are we dependent on Christ for our satisfaction, but we are dependent upon him for the power that enables us to be content. You go back to verse 13. Another way of, uh, another translation of this verse is, I can do all things in him who infuses strength into me. I love that. He infuses strength into me. You know, and many times I've been up here explaining the difference between imputing and infusing. Remember that? What's the difference? Imputing. Imputing righteousness to your account. When you become a Christian, God imputes Christ's righteousness to your account. That doesn't mean he makes you righteous. He imputes it to your account, which is in heaven. He sees you as righteous because of that, right? He doesn't infuse righteousness into you. He doesn't make you totally righteous. We're still justified sinners, right? Take that word and infuse power into you. He actually infuses power into you through the Holy Spirit. Think about that. What does that mean? The power of the Holy Spirit is in you. Ephesians 1.13 says that after believing, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? So if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. The power behind creation. The power behind the resurrection. That's amazing. It's amazing. The question is, how do I retain that power? You know, it, it, it kind of goes back to a simple battery in your car. How many of you have gone to your car? I should see every hand. How many of you have gone to your car, turned the key, and you get click, 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 click? And then you do it again, right? Because you think, oh, maybe that, it'll, it'll work this time. So you do it again, and you get click, 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 click. Um, and then you say, I got a problem, right? You can call it AAA. Um, or, or you say, all right, maybe the battery's dead, and let's say the battery's not dead. So you go to the battery, you pull the terminals off, right? And there's gunk all over them. That's a mechanic term, right? Gunk. Um, there's gunk all over them. And so what do you do? You take a knife and you scrape out our, our, our screwdriver. And you scrape it out and you scrape it down to bare metal. And then you want to start getting metal flaking off. So you get clean metal. Right? And you do that to the battery post. And then you put that thing back on and you tighten it down. And boom, that thing starts. Right? Because you've got a great connection. And that's what our life is with Christ. When we're abiding with him, how do we abide with him? By getting rid of the gunk is one thing. Confessing our sins, turning from our sins, being in the word, being uh, uh, here, being in discipleship classes, growing in Christ, being in prayer. All of those keep a connection with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't, we quench the Holy Spirit. And we lose his power. Let's look at the application of contentment. 
Think of Israel in the wilderness. What did they experience? They left Egypt, right? God parted the Red Sea. God destroyed the Egyptian army. God provided for all of their needs. Shoes that wouldn't wear out. Water from a rock. Manna in the wilderness. And what did they do? They became discontent. They started murmuring and complaining. And they started looking back to Egypt saying, hey, the food was a lot better there, which it probably wasn't. They became discontent. I had a woman come to my office years ago. She was a member of our church. And she brought her fiancé, didn't know she was engaged. Um, She walked in with him and said, I'd like you uh, to marry us. And I said, okay, well, let me me talk to you guys first. And right away I start talking to her fiancé, trying to figure out where he is spiritually, and we went on for about a half an hour, and finally I just determined, you know, after giving him the gospel and him not responding and him actually saying he didn't believe in sin, uh, I said, I can't marry you guys. I can't marry you guys because you would be unequally yoked. Well, that didn't please them. Sometimes it's hard being a counselor. And they got up and walked out, and they got married. And their marriage lasted about less than a year. Eventually she came back and apologized. Um, But what went wrong for this lady? What went wrong for her? She was trying to find contentment in marriage. She was trying to find contentment without abiding in Christ, without abiding in His Word. In closing, in the last will and testament of the reformer Martin Luther, he says this, or he said this, Lord God, I thank you that you have been pleased to make me a poor indigent man upon this earth I have neither house nor land nor money to leave behind me when I read that I said wow how could Martin Luther make a statement like that how how could he at the end of his life be content with his life when he didn't have a house he didn't have money he didn't have land he didn't have anything how could he be content Because his identity wasn't in what he owned. His identity, listen to this, his identity wasn't in what he did either. (laughs) And you think about Luther? He turned the world upside down, didn't he? God used him to transform the church. He reformed Christianity. But you know what? He wasn't dependent on what he did. His identity wasn't found in that. His identity was only in Christ and Christ alone. 
As one author says, he learned that they can take your job, they can take your house, they can damage your health, they can reject, oppress, and abuse you, they can rob you of family and friends, but the most essential and wonderful things in life are unassailable if you're his. Your salvation, your justification, your adoption, nobody can touch them. They are guaranteed. And when these things are your prize, as they were for Luther, when these are the things that really give shape and direction to your life, you can live with courage. You can live with hope. And you can live with contentment. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the only one who has words of eternal life. You are the only one who can keep your promises. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you with all of our lives. We thank you for the gospel.